0: Today on the show, I welcome Chip Conley. Chip is an entrepreneur, New York Times bestselling author, and founder of the Modern Elder Academy, a center in Baja, Mexico, that focuses on midlife learning. He has also served on the boards of Burning Man and the Esalen Institute. At age 26, Chip founded Joie de Vive Hospitality, He started with one run-down bankrupt motel in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco and eventually grew the company into the second largest boutique hotel brand in America. After 24 years, Chip sold Joie de Vivre and entered a liminal stage. He found himself in mid-life, still full of energy and brimming with experience, but living in a young person's world that valued digital intelligence over emotional intelligence. And then, one day, Brian Chesky, the CEO and co-founder of Airbnb, asked Chip to transform their little promising startup into the world's leading hospitality brand. Well, as outside observers, we all know what happened with Airbnb. But behind the scenes, Chip was stepping into a new kind of role, the modern elder. He was bringing wisdom and judgment to an environment that could often be unfocused and move too quickly. He was balancing the act of simultaneously being the curious intern and the astute mentor. He became comfortable with being the guide on the side, instead of the sage on the stage. When Chip finished his tenure at Airbnb, he penned Wisdom at Work, The Making of the Modern Elder, and he founded the Modern Elder Academy, the first midlife wisdom school in Pescadero, Mexico, who says we should only learn when we're kids. Well, Chip and I discuss the historical significance of elders in society and how Chip is trying to reclaim the word elder from elderly. We explore the difference between knowledge and wisdom, We talk about the importance of separating your self-worth from what you do. We dive into a number of emotional equations from Chip's eponymously titled book, and we excavate the qualities of the modern elder, including insight, EQ, holistic thinking, judgment, and stewardship. Chip is a wonderful raconteur, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So without further delay, I present to you, Chip Conley. Okay, away we go. Chip Conley, great to be with you.
1: Thank you, Jeff. I'm uh, honored to be on the show with you.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've had so uh, many points of intersection over the years, and we share quite a lot of interests from festivals to hospitality to cultural engineering to buddhism (laughs) and also a lot of friends um so it's great to to finally do this um and i and i suppose as you know i was thinking about this uh conversation and you know that very point of how much we share and how many friends we share is a unique attribute of what it is like to be Chip. Um, and I, I don't want to downplay my personal relationship with you because I do hold myself within the circle of, of Chip as one of the folks that you've spent time mentoring and supporting. At the same time, the, the diameter of the circle of Chip is very large. <laughs> and uh, I cannot tell you... How many people I have encountered over the years, some of whom I know very well and some of who I just serendipitously meet, uh, that have recounted some sort of yarn, uh, when you have guided them or invested in them. And it, it always honestly leaves me agog. I'm, I'm say to myself, how does this guy have the time and the energy to touch so many people's lives? And, um, and I suppose. These are among the components of being a modern elder. You freely dispense wisdom to a massive network of friends and people that respect you. Yeah. <laughs> so,
1: first of uh, all, I, I love the fact you used the word "yarn" and "agog." I mean, come on, this is you're you're, you're showing your age here, my friend. I love that. <laughs> um, so, someone once called me a social alchemist, hmm. and I loved that. I wanted to have business cards that said "social alchemist." Sort of like mix, a mixologist of people um so i i sort of I, I I've always been that i i was i grew up very introverted as a kid and um really had to be quite intentional in my teen years to socialize actually, my parents said to me at age twelve um if you don't get more social, we're gonna send you to therapy. And I thought like therapy was jail or something. I didn't really know what it was, but it didn't sound good. And so I learned to be a little more intentional moving from introvert to extrovert. Uh, What's interesting at this stage in my life, I'm 61 now, is I have in the last few years moved from extrovert to a little bit more of an introvert. Um, So it's been sort of moving back to that place. And um, so, yes, I, I do love people. I love being of service. Um and you know the combination of those two things means that I'm really actively in in many people's lives at once.
0: Yeah, I think the the teeter-totter between extroversion and introversion is an interesting one. Um and I think they're both necessary for a full life. I mean, there's a lot of debate within the philosophical community of of the contemplative thinker versus the active thinker. There was a a philosopher, or political theorist, Hannah Arendt. She actually Mm -hmm. specifically chose not to be called a philosopher because she believed that that was too disengaged from society, that a philosopher was constantly on a walkabout (laughs) and um, and not actually engaged in making a difference in society. So I, I, I find that, yeah.
1: Let me, let me riff on that for a second. I'm sorry to interrupt because the, the person, one of the people who's become a good friend of mine in the last year, because um, I've moved part time to Santa Fe, New Mexico, um, which we'll, we'll talk about is Richard Rohr. Now he created the center for action and contemplation, CAC. So exactly what you're talking about, this balance, this alchemy, I, I actually think life I actually think wisdom is about learning alchemy. Uh, you know, curiosity and wisdom, gravitas and levity. You know, how do you introversion, extroversion? I think over the course of your life, action and contemplation. How do you alchemize these opposites, both of which have an important role at the right time and in the right place?
0: Yes. In fact, that is the center of Confucianism in some ways, Mm -hmm. is to find order out of the madness of the polemic of yin and yang and uh, it's funny i've been listening to a lot of alan watts lately mm. and this is potentially a good segue into the the role of the elder in society and so you know confucianism was very geared towards those engaged in society it was had a lot of kind of formality and ritual to the warrior class and merchants and the serf or servant class of how people should interact within an ordered society. And then Taoism came along. And Taoism in a, in a way was meant for, um, for the elders, for those who had become disentangled with dull care, with the vicissitudes of society and, and personified by the ultimate elder, Lao Tzu, right? The, the creator of, of the Tao. And there was a fable, um, about Lao Tzu that he was born old and that he was actually born with a very long, long white beard. (laughs) That's
1: how they they pulled him out of the womb.
0: (laughs) Right. Now, this is probably apocryphal, but there is this notion of, historically, of the elder as this wrinkled and wizened uh, fount of wisdom. So I, I wonder if you could spend a little bit of time talking about historically, what has been the role of the elder in society? And, and then we can get into how that has changed.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because I, I am not, an, I'm not, I'm not a traditional elder. I'm a modern elder, I guess, based upon what the moniker I was given at Airbnb. Um, a, a wizened fount. That's what I, I want to be a wizened fount when I grow up. So, <laughs> so the, the hist- historically, the role of the elder was to be th- often through storytelling um be the keeper of what was valuable to a society. Um now that that valuable that the value could be in land wisdom, you know as a farmer understanding <clears throat> you know the farmer's almanac in your head before there was a farmer's almanac, how do the seasons come and go? What are the what's the what's the pattern recognition relative to how in the fall you can sort of get a sense of where where the weather's going to go and what timing uh, you'd want to harvest or plant. <clears throat> so, so much of it was um, spoken tradition, spoken, um, spoken, usable information. Some of it was pattern recognition because I, that's a, a lovely way to describe what wisdom is: the the recognition of patterns, um, mm-hmm. not just in weather but also in people. Um, but you know what happened. <clears throat> is as we moved from an agricultural society to an industrial society, as a first step, um, many of the pieces of knowledge and wisdom that older people had were not as valuable in the marketplace of uh, or the workplace, in terms of okay, well, you know, this is a new machine, and uh, and and uh, and there was also a brawn, you know, there was a brawn and a brain piece to this. And when it comes to brawn and brain, often you don't think of elders in that way. Um, you know, brain. Quite frankly, the, the human brain gets better with age in a variety of ways, which I can go into if you want me to. We tend to think of the human brain getting worse with age because of dementia or lack of memory or things like that. But there's so many other ways where the human brain gets better with them. But brain and brawn was not how elders were seen. So in the industrial era, the elders started to become this, maybe, I don't know, this redundant asset in society. Um, Then we had the great depression and that's when social security came along. We said, okay, let's get these old people out of the workplace because we have 25% unemployment. Let's bring new people in um, and let's put them out to pasture and let's create retirement communities so that Mm -hmm. they can actually be out there. So we not only, not only did we say they're no longer relevant, we said, let's create some age apartheid <laughs> mm-hmm. let's yeah. let's actually shudder them out to pasture so that they are just by themselves. And, um, and then we go to the technology era and um, the technology era took us to a place where, yeah, you know, you have digital natives and you have digital I- immigrants and older people are digital immigrants and younger people are digital natives. And one step further about why we didn't need the elder. But the truth is that it was, it was rich. It, it was, um, Peter Drucker, who in 1959 said, the world is going to be ruled by knowledge workers in the future. And he was right. Seven of the 10 most valuable companies in the world today are are technology companies. The ultimate knowledge worker is a tech worker. But I think where we are today, and the reason that I think the elder is making a comeback um, is because what we need today is not knowledge workers. We have a lot of knowledge workers, and we all have all the world's knowledge in our little iPhone. But what we really desperately need today, 62 years after Peter Drucker coined the term knowledge worker, is we need wisdom workers. And wisdom workers are people who come, are in the workplace or come back into the workplace and work with young, brilliant technologists to help create products that serve society. And when I say serve society, it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a nonprofit. It could be a for-profit. But there's a huge opportunity here for intergenerational collaboration, like we've never seen before.
0: What is the average median age at some of these technology companies like Google and Facebook? And <laughs> 28,
1: Apple? 30. Um, <clears throat> when I joined Airbnb, it was 26, uh, and I was 52 at the time. So, you know, do the math, I was twice the age of the average employee. So, yes, there and there, there's a lot of brilliance there, and there's a lot of knowledge. And we are an accumulating knowledge society, but more and more we need to learn how to distill wisdom.
0: Yeah. You know, I'd flagged this for a broader discussion, but it almost seems applicable to talk now about the delineation between knowledge and wisdom. Mm. And I'm sure that's something that you have spent a yeah. good amount of time investing in. So, can you riff on that a bit?
1: Well, Jimi Hendrix long ago said, "Knowledge speaks and wisdom listens," and that's exactly. I, I do love that. And who knew who knew that Jimi Hendrix was such a philosopher? Um, what it really means, what it speaks to, is the idea is knowledge is, um, center stage. Often, it it is. Um, you're, you, it means you're showing off. It's like who's the smartest person in the room. But also from a math perspective, knowledge from an equation perspective is a plus sign. It's something you accumulate over time Right. so that you have so much knowledge. Wisdom, on the other hand, is a, a division equation. It is taking knowledge, taking experience, taking um, intuition, and distilling down to the essence of what is important. And so it's that. So wisdom in some ways is the opposite of knowledge. Knowledge ex, is expansive. Wisdom is, um, is like, you know, the, this, the the square root of something. And why is that important? Well, in a world where we're just awash in knowledge and information and data, etc., being able to distill down what's essential um, is really, it becomes more and more important. So when I joined Airbnb nine years ago, Within a month, the founder said to me, we hired you for your knowledge, but what you really brought was your wisdom. And I was like, I don't know what the difference is. <laughs> and that yeah. became my some of my sojourn uh, at Airbnb is to learn the difference between knowledge and wisdom.
0: Yeah. And there's certainly elements that are concomitant between knowledge and wisdom. But uh, it's interesting the way you phrase it. I hadn't thought about it exactly that way, but knowledge might be... Understanding something th- through their component parts, through an analysis of their component parts, and wisdom might be understanding the essence of something, mm-hmm. um, which I, I think is is interesting. I, you know, I, I also feel that wisdom is more of a moral quality mm-hmm. than knowledge. I think David Brooks sure. talked about this a bit, yeah. um, and. <clears throat> it's almost like an acknowledgement of one's own deficiencies you know where like a wise leader will surround him or herself by people that actually infill around those deficiencies and and i suppose that there is a acknowledgement of mistake and failure baked into this oh, equation sure. where you know failure begets experience and experience can mm-hmm. beget wisdom if Correct. you're willing to actually acknowledge the mistake yes. and then modify, um, I, you know, there is that famous phrase, you know, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a, a, a different result is the definition of insanity. Um, so there's something there.
1: So two, yeah, two thoughts on that. Number one is I, I think knowledge is local and wisdom is global. And what does that mean? It means So knowledge is, you could have, you could be exceptionally knowledgeable about a particular thing, but the fact that you have a particular knowledge on that thing doesn't necessarily give you the collateral benefit that wisdom does. Wisdom is global because often wisdom speaks to your own ability to read your intuition and your own pattern recognition. And wisdom is, I don't know a wise person who's not also emotionally intelligent. Wisdom is about reading people. And About understanding humanity, and and there's the there is the philosopher quality to it. And yes, uh, a person who's wise is somebody who knows what they don't know, and is willing to admit it. Um, so when I joined Airbnb, I was called curious and Wisdom. They said you're a modern elder because you're as curious as you are wise. It's like okay, I don't love the idea of modern elder. It sounds like modern elderly. But if I'm modern, if I'm as curious as I am wise, yes, that is I, I would I I would uh, I would Buy into that. I, I oh, go ahead.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I was just going to say that you're you're reclaiming that word elder from Elder Lee. And yes. you know, when I th- hear the word elderly Lee versus the more historical context of the role of the elder, you know, I think obsolete, ossified, burdensome. <laughs> you know, yeah. I have a long list of adjectives um, that aren't particularly flattering. Um,
1: yeah, I think, I, and let's be clear about one thing here, because this relates to that elder is a relative term. It means often that you are, you're older, but not always older. You're, you have some level of wisdom stature that is different than the people around you. In the case of, at Airbnb, I was 52, average age was 26. But when I was 28 years old, Jeff, I, I was two years into having started my boutique hotel company, Joie de Vivre, um, I was totally lost. Um, we had the uh, Loma Prieta earthquake in 1989. There were no guests in town. I had one hotel that was empty for months. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? So one day I took a um, a journal that a friend had given me that I had not used. Um, and I wrote on the front of it my wisdom book. And my wisdom book was this thing I would use every weekend. So each weekend, back to your thought about you know, doing the same thing over and over again. Well, what I did is every weekend in my wisdom book, I would make a list of, I don't know, four to eight different things I had learned that week. Not my emotional experience with them. This is not a journal or a diary. What I would actually write down is what did I learn that week? Like, for example, what's an example of that? Um, When you have to present something to a team in work, and you know there's somebody on the team who's gonna be opposed to it, spend some time with them before the meeting to socialize it with them and maybe incorporate some of their thinking into it so that when you have the meeting, that person just doesn't become the critic. And so that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, something that's sort of obvious for me at age 61 was not obvious for me at age 28. So um, I created a, a book of wisdom and I now have nine of those books, and I have been doing it for 33 years. And the idea of metabolizing wisdom, or metabolizing and digesting your experience, so that you accelerate, you cultivate and you harvest your wisdom by being intentional about your lessons and your learning is what wisdom is all about.
0: Hmm. Wow, you have nine of those books.
1: I do. I might even have one back here. I have uh, no, you. I, I mean,
0: obviously, that. you've you've published a lot of wisdom. You've published five sure. books, and I think there's another secret sixth book uh, from the early days that we yeah. won't divulge. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think you wrote a, a book in grad school that I heard about once, but um, yes. <laughs> but uh, so obviously, you've incorporated some of what's in these nine books into your into your published work, but have you ever thought about actually publishing this volume of wisdom? No, (laughs) it'd
1: be like publishing, you you know, your diary. You know, I don't, I don't know how many people would really want to read it. Although, you know, some of what I've written over the years has made it into my books no doubt about it you know it's funny so i'm a abe maslow nut and i wrote a book called peak how great companies get their mojo from maslow that was became successful so i i spent time when i was writing that book oh there you go you've got it right there
0: Um, yeah right
1: yeah no it's something it's it's i love that book it's i i channeled that book book. that was that was not me writing it was me channeling abe maslow but the thing that was interesting about that book was abe maslow's diaries for the last 10 years of his life were published and there's only a hundred Supposedly, a hundred copies of them. It's a two-volume set, very thick. And guess what? So I went and read Abe Maslow's diaries of the last ten years of his life, which really helped me to see what had not been published. And yeah. it really did help me to see, gosh, if Abe Maslow had lived beyond age sixty-two, which is hard to believe that I'm only a year younger now than he was when he died, he would have written a blockbuster around. How to apply Maslow's hierarchy of needs to organizations or the workplace? He actually did write something called psyche and Management," which sold three thousand copies, but and it was very archaic. But he would have taken it a lot further. So, so yes, how do you how do you metabolize these things? And and yeah, my di- no one wants to read my diary, but so and nobody wants to read, frankly, all of that content. What they want to read is the distillation of that content.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's. Go back in time a little bit to when you uh, had started Joie de Vivre, and I'll tell you just a little story um, that just underscores how many points of intersection I have with you, whether you know about them or not. Um, so, I was in the music business. I managed, uh, I, I had a management company. I was managing a whole roster of bands, uh, one in particular, which was my brother's band called Soul Live, and they were in a, a a soul jazz trio an old school kind of organ trio and they actually used a big hammond b3 not a kind of new fangled Uh um keyboard and this thing was i mean it weighed like 250 pounds or something so it was just not practical at all but we were just grinding it out in the northeast we were just week after week we had residencies in philly and boston and new york and i think burlington and every week we would run through these cities and lug this b3 around and but you know we were getting some real traction and um finally we booked a west coast tour and the first time we were coming out to the west coast And I had a buddy, Eric Newsom, who is also a fellow manager, and he, he managed a band called Carl Denson, um, and, uh, great, another great kind of soul jam band. So we booked two nights at the Great American Music Hall. And this was a big achievement at this juncture because we had, you know, I was the guy, you know, passing out the flyers at the end of the night, booking the tour, booking the hotels hauling the gear you know all of it i mean we had you know other crew too but it, it wasn't uh, i wasn't in some ivory tower looking at a spreadsheet um and uh so eric uh, and this of course was er, you know early to this was maybe 2000, 2000 or 2001 and um <clears throat> eric's like well you know if you're gonna play at the great american music hall you know you gotta stay at the phoenix at this Phoenix hotel. Yes. And I'm like, all right, I'm, I, you know, I don't know. We've never been out there. You know, this is, our, this is our first tour. Um, so we booked two nights at the Phoenix. And I remember, you know, we finally got to San Francisco and we rolled up and this is in the Tenderloin, yeah. not a particularly <laughs> sterling neighborhood. Um, yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh my God, what are we doing? Where are we staying? What's going on? And we pulled up to this motel. I mean, it was legit, looked like a motel. Yeah. But we came in and this place was so cool. I mean, it was so cool. You know, the the kind of entry vestibule area was kind of turned into this hip DJ area. And the pool was all kind of lit up. And it was this old motel style. But the rooms had been kind of zhuzhed up and were cool and we must have stayed there a dozen times maybe two dozen times Mm -hmm. and uh of course this was your this was your first hotel right
1: yeah and it was it was really you know i started in 1986 87 so you know the idea of converted motor lodges and motels were (laughs) was not what as as sort of prevalent as it is today um Yeah, I mean, I was 26 years old. I was a couple years out of Stanford Business School. I was basically a businessman who wanted to be an artist when he grew up. And um, I had a commercial real estate background. And I was bored silly. And I said, I want boutique hotels were just getting off the ground and as a as a as a new kind of hotel. And so, you know, when you don't have a lot of money and you don't come from a family of money, you go out and buy a broken down pay by the hour motel <laughs> that, ha, you know, had, you know, hourly rates and it was in bankruptcy and foreclosure in a bad neighborhood and you make the best of it. And, that's what the, and the phoenix, you know, was the symbolic bird, uh, mythological bird that rose from its own ashes. It's actually the city bird of San Francisco because of the earthquake and fire in 1906. And so, yeah, that was my first of 52 boutique hotels over the course of my 24 years of being CEO of Shuana Wow.
0: Wow. 52 hotels. Um, yeah. So I also remember staying quite a few times uh, at the property in Japantown that was very near the Fillmore because we moved up from the Great <laughs> American Music Hall, which had a capacity of about 500 or 550 or something. And then the Fillmore, legendary, and that had a capacity of about 1,100. And we started doing two nights there. And um, and then just to kind of round it out, when I was starting Wanderlust, and obviously we share a common passion for festivals, um, Wanderlust, for the listeners who haven't heard me um, blather on about it, um, in prior episodes was a... Of yoga festival that brought together a lot of different teachers across the, the broadest definition of well-being and created what i might call the world's largest yoga retreat for, mm-hmm. for lack of a better definition and uh <clears throat> but the new need friends and in 2008 um i was trying to get this concept off the ground of yeah we're going to make a festival of yoga and it's also going to have music And it also is going to have nature involved into it. And people were looking at me like cockeyed, like, what are you doing? What is it? What are you doing? And someone had given me your email. (laughs) And I was, and I had heard about the legacy of Chip. And I was like, well, God, man, if there's anyone that would get this, given that you're on the board of Burning Man, of Esalen, of, you know, these other kinds of Entities and energies that had focused on fostering community around mindful living, uh, Chip Conley would get it, you know. So I sent you an email and I, my expectations were, I don't know if I had any, but within a couple hours, you sent me an email back and you said, uh, Hey, you know, I've got this property in uh, San Francisco called the Vitali. And uh, if you ever want to kind of do anything here to wire up your community, um, you know it's all yours. And I said, "Oh my God, that's that's incredible!" And you know, a few months later, the very, very first Wanderlust event was on the roof of the Vitali Hotel. <laughs> Yes. Um, and what we did was I followed your advice. We, I, I invited every single significant and insignificant yoga teacher in the San Francisco Bay area. And I said, Hey, come and, you know, we'll all just have a big community event on the, on the roof of the, of the Vitali. And yeah, 40, 50 people showed up, all teachers. And I got a moment to share the vision of what I wanted Wanderlust to become, which was kind of this bigger stage for teachers, that we could take the production savvy of Bonnaroo or Austin City Limits or Lollapalooza, and you know, put teachers on a big stage where they belonged, with proper production and support and sound and lights. Now, in retrospect, I don't know if that was a great idea, <laughs> um, but in in the moment, it uh, it certainly felt good, and I think people really appreciated it. and uh, And the Vitali Hotel was the venue.
1: <laughs> we had moved up in the world. Let's start by saying we had moved from the tenderloin to the Embarcadero across the street from the Ferry Building on the Bay of San Francisco, and this was a luxury hotel as opposed to you know a rock and roll motel. And uh, yeah, I mean it was that was beautiful. We did we what you were doing was simpatico with what the Vitali was. Vitali you know meant vitality, and our premise with that boutique hotel was there is a growing number of people who want to stay and feel vital. Um, And they've outgrown the W and but they're not ready for the, you know, four seasons of the Ritz Carlton and uh, the bourgeois bohemians to use the David Brooks uh, term. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of bourgeois bohemians out there and I think Wanderlust appealed to many of them.
0: Yeah, it did. And, And it does. Um, And in a way, it was catching a wave and propelling a wave at the same time. And I I would say that that is very, very true of Joie de Vivre too, because Mm -hmm. before there was B Corp or this notion of conscious capitalism, there was what you were doing. So in in what way was that instinctual and and what were some of the rallying cries and rituals that made Joie de Vivre a, a company with soul?
1: Well, f- first of all, you know, when you call a, a comp- your comp- when your company name is also your mission statement, uh, you have done something that's quite unusual. And then when you have chosen a unpronounceable, uns- unspellable French term that most people in the United States don't know what it means, joy of life, you, you, you know you're getting out there, uh, you're sort of taking a risk. <laughs> so, um, that, so creating joy became our anthem it was our mantra. It was, you know, for the 3,500 employees we ultimately had, uh, at our peak, um, it was the, it was the way that we created a magnet. It was also how we held ourselves accountable with the idea that first you create a great culture, which makes your employees thrilled. And if your employees are thrilled, especially in the service industry, your customers are likely to be thrilled and happy. If they're happy, they're loyal. Uh, they, t- they spread the word, you, you grow market share and you, you have a profitable and sustainable business and then you invest back in the culture. So it's a virtuous circle. Um, John Mackey from Whole Foods Markets and I talked about it a whole lot. You know, he's the one who ultimately created a book called Conscious Capitalism and a movement around it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, my point of view was pretty simple, which is um, I want to be in the business to make people happy, create joy. I also want to be in the business of, helping our employees feel like their work is almost like being in a workshop. Uh, It's almost like personal development is going to be synonymous with corporate development. And if we develop humans, uh, then, and help self-actualize them, you're going to social actualize the company. You're going to make a big difference in the world. And that's what we did. And, you know, I ultimately sold Shwantaviv. Um, and, uh, And it's now, a JDV is now a um, uh, Hyatt brand. But it was hard, it's very hard. There's something ephemeral. My first TED talk in 2010 was about uh, studying the Gross National Happiness Index in Bhutan. Literally going to Bhutan, spending a week with the Gross National Happiness Index um, team and leaders, and then coming back and saying, okay, how do you measure happiness in companies and in society? And what's true of this in companies, it's really hard to measure soul. And often, when you scale a company, scale and soul are are mutually exclusive. And so that's why, frankly, after I sold Joalviv, Vive, I was, uh, you know, there's a f- famous movie, the, the 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 Intern with Robert De Niro and Anne Hathaway, and he says early in the movie, musicians don't retire; they quit when there's no more music left inside of them. So I knew I had music inside of me at age 50 or 52. I just wasn't sure who to share it with. And when Airbnb came along knocking on my door, um, I knew the first thing I wanted to look at is how do we build a company that can actually both scale and still have soul?
0: Mm, Yeah. So difficult uh, because those notions – uh, do not seem to move in concert um, all of the time. I think it is easy to maintain a small, tidy business and with a lot of soul, because you know everybody's name, everybody's invested in the mission. Mission fluency is a lot easier with twenty people versus two thousand or twenty thousand people. Yeah. Um, so, and, and if
1: you're and if you're doubling in size every year within three or four years, you, you have a whole collection of people who don't know, they know the founder's story, they know the origin story, but they weren't living that. And, um, and yeah, there's a, it's, you know, you, you end up with way too much spine and not enough soul and the spine is sort of like what holds it all together, but it's, you know, no one, no one is a spine is not sexy.
0: So we've also shared the emotional process of stepping away from mm. businesses that we were highly identified with. Yes. So you stepping away and selling Joie de Vivre eventually and I had the same experience with Wanderlust. And I will just speak from my own experience that there was a deep period of both mourning and growth in that order, post-Wanderlust for me, because I had a very difficult time separating my identity from what I did. And I suppose you might categorize this as a trap of the ego. Yes, yes. (laughs) So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that process of stepping, of selling your business. And, And I think people can see this in their own life, no matter what they might be stepping away from. Like it right. could be a relationship. It could be, uh, you know, something that one has invested their time in. Yeah. Um, and in your case, it was a business.
1: There could, it, it could be a specific identity. It could be being a mother or a father and now empty nester. It, it could be right. being a caretaker and now your parents have passed away. Um, it could be being a hero. Um, in archetypal ways across your life, so do, so let's uh, let's make sure people understand this is not just an entrepreneur's dilemma. This is this is one that affects all of us. And it's we'll talk about the Modern Elder Academy later, but the, that's one of the key things we do is help do the great midlife edit. What are the archetypes, mindsets, habits, and ways of being that we are ready to let go of in midlife or beyond? So for me, I had divine intervention. So I was going through a very difficult time in my life, around age 47, uh, 40, frankly, about forty-six to age forty-nine, um, during the Great Recession. So it was right going into the Great Recession, and everything that was could go wrong was going wrong, and not just with my business. My long-term relationship was ending. I have an African-American foster son who was going to prison wrongfully, ended up getting let out eight months later out of San Quentin, and but was a changed man as a result of it. Unfortunately. Wow. Um, I had one of my closest friends who has the same name I do, Chip uh, Hankins, my, my insurance broker, um, took his own life. And he was one of five friends who, uh, you know, died by suicide during 2008 to 2010. So all this was going on and I was running out of cash to run Joie And long story short is I was really in a dark place and, um, and then I broke my ankle playing baseball and, you know, um, and, <laughs> and then I got a bacterial infection in my leg. And then I was on a strong antibiotic and I had a flatline experience. I died. So I was 47 years old. I, August 19, 2008 was giving a speech in St. Louis on crutches and literally died, uh, um, nine times over 90 minutes. Fortunately, I went unconscious first, the paramedic showed up. So the first time I went flatline, they could paddle me back to life. And I, I mean, paddles on the heart, electric paddles. Um, so I was in a place, Jeff, where 22 years into running that company, at that point, I had this sense like, I i don't want to wake up every day and feel like this is the thing I have to do the rest of my life. I felt like I was in a straitjacket with this company that I'd created at. And so I made a pact with myself and actually was reading a book that night um, uh, in my the ICU uh, and then in my own private uh, hospital room. And it was "Man Search for Meaning. Uh, and it, it, Victor Frankl's famous book on yeah. concentration camp. And, brother, um, <laughs> yeah, you got it right there. and i distilled down over the course of the two days i was in the hospital while they were doing all these tests on me it turns out i had an allergic reaction to the antibiotic that's what happened to me but um it turns out that i spent all this time reading about meaning and saying okay well i think if i were to take this book and i'd read it before so i was skimming it if i were to turn it into an equation or a mantra that i could remember it was despair equals suffering minus meaning suffering being sort of ever-present and despair and meaning being the 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 variables. So you have a constant suffering, uh, the variables despair and meaning. And when I finally got that through my thick skull, I realized I need more meaning in my life. And it was in that process that I started to say, okay, how do I extricate myself from this identity that I have created here that is is um, is killing me and it wasn't killing me but the fact that i had a flat experience meant me i could sort of say i don't I, I could die tomorrow and i don't want to say this is the last thing i did so the next two years uh was the process of quite privately figuring out how to sell this company that was in a very difficult place because of the great recession so it was it was that process that helped me to realize wow number one midlife is a difficult period of time my five friends who committed suicide were average age 48, a year older than me. Number two is um, learning how to extricate yourself from these identities is hard work. And it's not something that you know society has done a very good job of helping people understand. And midlife, the only thing we know about midlife is has it has the worst brand in the world because if you add a, a word to midlife, it's crisis. So all of that was note to self, but I also was ready, as I said with that, that, uh, that Robert De Niro quote, to go out and try something new and see where I could share my music, the music that was inside of me.
0: Yeah. Wow. Okay. So many different threads to pull on there. Um, so first of all, the notion of suffering and being a constant. Now, of course, this is, you know what the Buddha tells us in uh, chapter one of Noble Truths. That's um, right. And in chapter two, <laughs> um, the craving or Trishna, um, literally thirst, uh, is what fuels that suffering. But behind that is there is a constant identification with um, that which is impermanent. So I am the CEO of Wanderlust. You are the CEO and founder of Joie de Vivre. You have this midlife crisis red Corvette. You have this <laughs> fancy
1: house.
0: You have- Truf, uh, Trophy this,
1: girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, yes.
0: Yeah, just go and you know, knock it down, knock down the list. And obviously Nirvana released from suffering quite literally to blow out Nir and Vana- <sighs> is a letting go, is a letting go of that craving. And in a way, meaning emerges within that process. And really, Chapter 4 of the Noble Truths is in some ways what one might call the Dharma or the Eightfold Noble Path, which is the chopping wood and carrying water of life that, um, that with the right understanding is, is the work and, you know, going back to Frankl, um, you know, he claims that meaning is found in in one of three places. It's found in community or relationship. It's found within work or your creativity. And it's found within suffering. And I would say that the latter is the most difficult sure. to find meaning in. So, when you... Um, Created that emotional equation, um, which later became a book of emotional equations. Um, but that first one, despair equals suffering minus meaning. There is a lot to play with, uh, within there. And, and I wonder, as you've become to embody many of the qualities of the elder, uh, of the modern elder, you know, how do you think about all of those things about despair, about suffering, and about meaning such that that equation can, can make the most sense? Because clearly where you want that equation to be is with despair as low as it possibly can be, right? And yes. despair being the absence of hope. So how do you navigate that?
1: Well, the way I look at it is the following. So, this, yes, the first noble truth of, truth of Buddhism is suffering is ever-present. So that's why I say suffering is a constant. Um, right. Some people would refute it, but I just say, you know, it, it's there. It's out there. It's sort of what it means to be human, uh, partly because of another emotional equation, disappointment equals expectations minus reality. So, <laughs> um, so su- su- suffering is there. Um, the beauty of this is to realize this, this seesaw of meaning and despair, and the, you, the place to put your attention in terms of those two variables is um, on the meaning. Because if you can increase the meaning, the despair goes down. So let's just do a math equation. You know, right. if eight equals 10 minus two, despair is eight, meaning is two. And, you know, so, okay, if I can take, if I can add, you know, meaning to six, then despair goes down to four. So there's so there's that correlation and I you know the serenity prayer speaks to this grant me the serenity to accept the things i cannot change the constant the suffering the courage to change the things i can the meaning and the wisdom to know the difference it has wisdom in the serenity prayer so wisdom is learning in life what is a constant what is a variable and point your attention to the to the variable And, you know, but many of us, you know, and and it's this language comes up in, you know, Stephen Covey about your circle of influence. Well, you know, it's that simple. It's a math equation and focus your attention on the variable, because actually, if you increase the meaning, it decreases the despair. And that's when I said, man, if it's that simple, why don't we do it? And it's not that simple. It's very hard. And yet, that's what led me to writing 18 different emotional equations on a variety of different subjects, because I wanted to go out and research emotions, because most of us only learned our emotions from our parents, and they weren't very good teachers.
0: <laughs> that's, that's right. And this is straight out of Marcus Aurelius' Stoicism. Yes. yes. Um, yes. In fact, in some ways, you you mathematized, or you, you turned some of classic Stoic, um, mm-hmm. Philosophy into math problems, which uh, um, I found to be, in some ways, perfect for blockhead men like me who, who <laughs> have trouble, um, it, you know, finding vessels for their emotions. And uh, math equations seemed like a good way to do that. Um, but they do really uh, simplify and clarify. So if you take that first. Equation despair equals suffering minus meaning. And you obviously want to ratchet up the meaning. And so it, to, to decrease the despair. And if you can then focus in on, like, well, what are the ways that I can do that? Well, I got to look at my relationships. I have to look at my well being. I have to look at my creativity. And then I also have to look at, like, where can I find meaning in adversity? Where can I find that resilience?
1: back to my wisdom book. My wisdom book was helpful because it made me realize when bad stuff's happening to me, but I'm actually learning good stuff from the bad experiences, that gives me a sense that, okay, there's some, something good coming out of this, which helped me to give, have a sense of lessons and meaning. And so in many ways, that's what led me to making it through that great recession is to say, I'm going back to my wisdom wisdom book again, because at that point, I probably was doing it once a month, not once a week, but it actually took me back because, you know, when you're going through the hardest times, that's when you need to be the most intentional about what you're metabolizing when it comes to wisdom.
0: Yes. So, and I, I will say I have this one too, and I didn't have to go out and buy yeah. any of these prior yeah. to our interview. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just have them as part of my life. Um, and so I want to – excavate another equation in the, in the book which was about happiness um, so happiness equals wanting what you have divided by having what you want yeah. so, so let's, unpa- let's unpack that. that one
1: so I learned that in Bhutan so you know if another way to say this so I, I love the language here wanting what you have is gratitude to want what you have means I appreciate what I have gratitude to have what you want is gratification, which is really the pursuit of happiness, which is really American society. Uh, American society is bottom heavy, and I'm not even gonna unpack that one. But, <laughs> but what I am gonna say is, we are so fixated with the gratification, so fixated with the pursuit, that often we lose track of the gratitude piece of it. And Bhutan helped me to see this. Bhutan helped me to see like, wow, you know, so much of that society is about gratitude. My favorite place on earth is Bali. They put out the, the morning offerings, you know, that are just gorgeous, that are all about gratitude. And and so then I came back from my Bhutan trip and did a little research to say, oh, okay, social scientists say that one of the most consistent ways to actually uh, boost your sense of happiness is to accelerate your process of, of um, not accelerate, but to deepen your process of feeling gratitude. Hmm so yeah that 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 one led to my ted talk and um and and you know it it led to me really looking much deep more deeply at my relationship with gratification um and yeah so
0: yeah well there is a stoic contemplation i might even categorize it as a negative visual visualization um that one can apply to to wanting what you have. so as you say, we are we live in a society of of hungry ghosts where we have these enormous stomachs with huge appetites and a mouth that's a little bit this big, and we're always trying to <laughs> <laughs> um, consume as much as we possibly can, and we have this you know notion that you know if only and only if I can get that thing out there, then I will be happy. So, what that creates is always a chasm or a gap between what you have and what you want, right? Um, And there is a stoic meditation that seems kind of morose on the surface of it, but it's not morose at all, where you visualize losing something that is treasured. Yes. Like, you know, my dad gave me this watch, doesn't have to be a physical object, but my dad gave me a watch for um, graduating college so long ago. And, you know, I think about, oh man, you know, I've kept it. I've always treasured it. It's just a kind of just a little token, and heirloom that I think about my dad. I I don't think it even keeps time (laughs) anymore. Um, But, you know, I imagine, okay, losing that and not having it. And then all of a sudden, I feel a sense of gratitude well up inside me for what I have. And it, it, it diminishes that gap between what I have and what I think I want to be happy.
1: So the way I describe that is, uh, and I think this is a form of wisdom, is wisdom it, it, it means that you are exceptional at creating anticipated regret. Hmm. No, regret is a, <clears throat> a very painful emotion because if it's the regret of the thing that you wish you'd done that you didn't do and you can't do over again, that's lost. And that is, <clears throat> that is more painful than having a regret of something you wish you hadn't done that you did do. So anticipated regret speaks to this idea of like, um, well, the question we ask here at the Modern Elder Academy often is this one, which is what do you know now? Or what, are you, what have you done now that you wish you had done or learned 10 years ago? Once you take that into your mind, then ask the following question. What 10 years from now will you w- regret if you don't learn it or do it now? And mm. that is, again, saying anticipated regret <clears throat> of how I'll feed, feel 10 years from now might help me to spur me into action today, whether it's to learn something or to do something. And um so I would just say um, anticipated regret is is a, a term that hasn't been used out there very much, but I truly think it's a form of wisdom because it's a way for people to be futuristic enough about what their life's going to be like to take help them take action today.
0: Mm, yeah. Marcus Aurelius has a great quote. Um it's, uh, do not act as if you were going to live 10,000 years, death hangs over you while you live, while it is in your power, be good or mm. do the thing. Um, so this is, uh, uh, I find that a lot of these equations again, kind of, uh, rest on a foundation of stoicism. Let's talk about one more. Cause this one I have sure. applied, um, <clears throat> assiduously to my life only because I, have a good deal of anxiety about particular things. So this one is about anxiety, and it is anxiety equals uncertainty times powerlessness.
1: Yes. Yeah, it's not plus, because actually if you have them both, it's combustible. And if you can actually reduce one of them close to zero, it actually could have a positive impact on the other. So 98% of anxiety, according to the anxiety experts of the world, 98% of it can actually be still down to either what you don't know uncertainty or what you can't influence powerlessness so the way to solve this one is to ask yourself how could I become more knowledgeable about something in the context of a company for leaders in a company hey guess what <laughs> and you know you don't want an anxious company so that means be more transparent in fact the more difficult the economic circumstances, the more transparent you ought to be because it actually reduces the uncertainty. People often much prefer having bad news than no news because they can, they can ratchet it up, ratchet how they are going to respond accordingly. And then the second piece is powerlessness. How, help people to see it in whether it's in your own life or people you work with, help them to see what they can influence. So I do something called the the anxiety balance sheet, which shows four columns: what is it that I do know, what is it that I don't know, and then what is it that I can influence, what is it that I can't influence. And when people actually do the anxiety balance sheet, they often realize that there are many more things under what do I do know and what can I influence than you think. Um, so making sometimes making t- sometimes making anxiety tangible uh, is is a, a part of this because. Free-floating anxiety is a is a real term and a real condition, and it's often not founded or or you know foundational to really what's happening.
0: Right, and this harkens back to the Niebuhr Serenity Prayer to some degree, and also okay. the Stoicism's mm-hmm. embrace of or acknowledgement about of what one can and cannot control. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, I'll. I'll ground this particular equation in my own personal experience of how I've used it. And I've always, um, uh, credited you for this in a way that might not actually be great for your status, <laughs> your stature. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'll tell you how, so, you know, there was a period where I was doing a good amount of public speaking and, uh, like plenty of other people, I have a good amount of anxiety about public speaking So I also can acknowledge that I'm a decent public speaker. Um, But that's maybe why I have anxiety about it, because I put pressure on myself to to thrive in that environment. In any case, um, to reduce my anxiety around being on stage in front of a lot of people, I started in my rider, or I started to ask a lot of questions to reduce the amount of uncertainty, like... How many people will there be? Uh, will they be standing? Will they be sitting? Will I be sitting? Will I be standing? Will I be on a chair? Will I have a glass of water? Will it be bubbly? Will it be flat? Where is the exit? (laughs) What's the temperature of the room? Uh, will I have chicken or beef or can I get plant based? You know, like, you know, anyway, on and on and on, basically eliminating all of the things that I might be uncertain about and, and increasing what I might be certain about. And, um, and after, and connected to this long list of questions that I would ask my promoter or presenter, I would say you can thank Chip Conley for all of this extra work. Now just no, get that's uh, why I've I just, never been
1: hired by the people who, who they <laughs> hire you because they say, "Oh my God, this guy wants red red M Ms, not green M Ms."
0: <laughs> no, I, you know, but there there was a certain logic to it, and I have used it in in ways that I found to be. Uh, very beneficial. I will also say that you know the human mind is just not conditioned to be uncertain. It doesn't like it. And there is some wisdom in becoming comfortable with a certain amount of uncertainty. Sure. And uh, and you know, in my meditation practice, you know one witnesses emotions, arise and subside as phenomena moment to moment, you know? And um, I didn't put it there per se. It just simply arose in my field of awareness. And, you know, as one becomes a more accomplished meditator, as I know you are, um, one be- begins to be able to witness emotions without assigning any particular valence to them. You know, that there is fear, there is jealousy, there is envy, there is love, there are guests invited or uninvited to my party and they're leaving, (laughs) just like Rumi says. And, um, And what I began to notice about anxiety is the sensation, the physical sensation of anxiety is not that different than the physical se- sensation of excitement.
1: But it's deprived of breath. Yes. <laughs> sorry. And that, was it has, one, that was the punchline,
0: but I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's that's great. And, and it has no valence on it. So, you know, where I try to be with anxiety now is when I – uh, witness that sensation arising in, and it might be nausea, or it might be a tightening of the neck muscles, or some people get headaches. Every everyone manifests these things physically uh, in a different way, um, but to breathe, step back, assign no valence to it, and just. Almost the moment that you witness it, you can watch it float away. Um, and uh, so anyways, but but your this equation has given me fodder <laughs> for, as you can probably tell, much contemplation. <laughs>
1: well, I mean, I, last thought on this would be external and internal weather. So it, 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 when we think that, frankly, that anxiety is never going away, it's like saying that rainstorm is never going to go away. I mean, our external weather and our internal weather are very similar. They're, they're systems that come through us, and it's when we actually fret, freak out, thinking that it's never going to go away, that we actually make it worse. Um, so, yeah, it, you know, I, I do love the Rumi the Guest House" um, poem. It, it, it pretty much says this in a, a very profound way.
0: Yeah, it does. It does. Okay. So you're on the other side of Joie de Vivre. You're on the other side of publishing a number of books, uh, Emotional Equations being one of them. And you are in this liminal
1: state. Mm. And then what? Yeah, you know, one of the things that's hard about midlife is you don't know whether it's going to get better or worse. Generally, the societal narrative says it's going to get worse after midlife. You know, if you can survive your crisis, look forward to decrepitude, disease and irrelevance. And <laughs> and so, yeah, there was a part of me that felt like I, I still have some wisdom. I still have some music I wanted to pass on. And I was lucky enough that the three young founders of Airbnb approached me in um, about, about nine years ago in early 2013. And they had this tech startup that was growing fast, but nobody in the company had an entrepreneurship or leadership background, nor anybody had any background in hospitality or travel, the industries that, they, that the company was disrupting. And so I was asked to come in um, to be, uh, Brian Chesky, the co-founder and CEO, asked me to come in and, and to be his mentor and to be the head of global hospitality and strategy. And it was supposed to be a part-time thing. And it was, it was not part-time ever. Um, But it was interesting because he, he, you know, he did ultimately say, Chip, you're a modern elder. You're as curious as you are wise. Um, And that was after I'd been there for a little while, but it was a hard thing because I was, you know, I was reporting to a guy 21 years younger than me. I was mentoring him at the same time. Um, I had to learn how to just say, oh, wow. Uh, My ego has been my operating system for my life up to this point. And um, I'm a big fan of Richard Rohr, as I mentioned earlier, as well as Carl Jung. Both of these guys have in their own way said that the, the operating system for the first half of your life is your ego. For the second half of your life, it's your soul. And it's in midlife that you are supposed to learn how to change your operating system but we actually have no schools or tools or rites of pastor rituals for this. And, and and instead we have just people getting confused. And so I was put in a circumstance where I did have to right size my ego. I was, you know, I was no longer the sage on the stage. I was the guide on the side. I was the person helping these three guys become great leaders and, and help their company. And, and it was a fascinating experience because I also had a lot of fear. I was like, I'm, in my I'm'm you know, I'm 52 years old in a tech company and I don't even I don't understand the language they're using here I've never worked in a tech company before so long story short is um, I turned my fear into curiosity and um, started mutual mutually mentoring people um, I, meaning that I was an intern as much as I was a mentor and ultimately was a mentor to over a hundred people people in the Airbnb organization, um, but also helping to run many parts of the company. So it was a fascinating journey. I feel very proud of my time there and the fact that the three founders are still very actively involved in running the company. And This is the only time in the history of companies that a company has grown to $120 billion value where all three founders, you know, 13 years into it are still actively involved. And that was a lot of my role as well, was to help the three of them see how they have a symbiotic relationship.
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly there are multiplicity of examples where (laughs) kind of wunderkind uh, founders have not made it for uh, a variety of different reasons, but generally because um they just don't have the experience they don't have the wisdom they might have they don't have the the modern elder right they don't
1: have the modern elder they don't i mean so travis kalanick you know at uber could have used a modern elder adam newman at WeWork could have used a modern elder elizabeth holmes could have used a modern elder the modern elders there to to not be the gray hair, to, to be the only wise one in the room. They're the one who's going to be interning publicly and mentoring privately. That's what I did. Interning publicly meant I didn't mind being the most curious person in the room and asking a lot of questions because it's very Socratic.
0: Yeah. And there's a spiritual correlation to this as well. When you talk about U-turning, really, in midlife, mm-hmm. because your whole life as a young person and as an adolescent and as a young adult, it's all about this notion of individuation, you know, from yes. the moment you're sort of like expelled from the womb you, and you become verbal and your eyes begin to focus. You're like, that's a tree. That's a book. That's my mom. And then sl- slowly like that's a Republican or that's someone of a different sexual orientation or all and inherent in all of that labeling. You know, there's a CEO, whatever is is a labeling of oneself of as, um, and this is the process that we go through to convince ourselves that there is a self, that there is an individual, and that we. But the problem with this is that it underscores this story of separation that we believe that we are separate individuals living in a separate external universe, separate from Chip, separate from nature, separate from the divine, God, spirit, however you want to describe it, and when we u-turn we discover that 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 notion of self of a stable reliable self is an illusion (laughs) and that we are emerging within a holobiont of mutual interdependence at all times and whether you want to think of like how one actually takes a breath and How that is even possible to working within a family, to working within a country, to working within a company. You are always working within systems that are organized as a net, you know, as Indra's net uh, if you're a a Buddhist. And and, but not everyone gets to experience that U-turn where one eschews the ego and then actively becomes part of the net and, uh, and really almost toggles between self and take to community and give. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I, I wouldn't doubt that you you would have been on that path and you have been on that path just given all of the your curiosity and wisdom. Um, that you've had throughout your whole life, but it feels like this particular experience accelerated or helped to propel that that process.
1: Sure. Well, the meaning of life is to find our gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. And mm. so that m- the meaning is really fueled in the first half of life by finding your gift, finding your talent, f- through individuation, finding what's your essence and, and what differentiates you. And then it, the purpose comes from actually knowing I've got that. Now, how do I share it? And, and, and I like to, the language I like to use personally is moving from being a can do it kind of person to a conduit. And the mm-hmm. conduit is being the channel, being in the business of sharing the gift, being in the business of uh, being, forget about business, being, being, living a life that is full of gift giving. And, um, so yes, what is, what is shift for me? Um, because I was a very ego fed uh, CEO (laughs) for 24 years. Um, so the process of doing that at, at Airbnb then led me to, you know, deciding, okay, well, if I'm a modern elder, I'll write a book called wisdom at work, the making of a modern elder. And while I was writing that book down here in Baja, um, at a beach home I have on the beach, you know, here I had a baha aha, I had an epiphany and the epiphany was, why is it that we have no schools or tools or rites of passage or rituals for people in midlife and midlife defined broadly 35 to 75, because, uh, there are people feeling in midlife earlier, because frankly, there's certain industries, especially if you're a software engineer, where you actually feel sort of irrelevant earlier. And then people are working and living longer. And so how do we help people to make sense of this period of life? And how do we help them to li- to learn what I call long life learning, which is to live a life that's as deep and meaningful as it is long? Um, because we, we've gotten the quantity right. The quantity meaning, you know, people are living longer in the world. Uh, you know, pandemic has certainly affected that. And so have diseases of uh, death by despair in the US, uh, which is a very US phenomenon, quite frankly. But what we have m- not been giving as much attention to is not the, is that we've gotten the quantity, but not the quality. So how are we how are we addressing quality of life for people fifty and older? Uh, and so that's been a, a you know my thing for the last oh gosh half dozen years.
0: Yeah, and um, I want to go into that specifically in, in the Modern Elder Academy and what it is and and what it teaches. I want first to ask you to. Just to expound a tiny bit on the, because you list these, and I, I think that they're so potent, the five characteristics of the modern elder, because I think part of actually, uh, you know, the equation is almost acknowledging and realizing one's own value as an elder. Um, so, uh, you know, yeah. So I wonder if you could talk maybe just about judgment and insight in this list yeah. that, you, that you've that you created.
1: Sure, this, these are the qualities that I think define a, a modern elder. And a modern elder, again, versus a traditional elder, is very, um, wisdom flows in both directions. So it's not, the traditional elder was sort of a hierarchy and power rested with the older people. Well, that's a world that still is true in the political realm, but not as true in a lot of other realms. So the five qualities are good judgment, um, often based upon, you know, pattern recognition uh, from the past. Secondly, is unvarnished insight, and I like the unvarnished piece of that. Insight is something. Yes, you're able to distill down things. That, you know, as we get older, the brain gets better at systemic thinking, um, and that is something that we are able to use to be more insightful. The unvarnished piece means that you don't sugarcoat it. You know how to be both direct and respectful at the same time. Thirdly is emotional intelligence. And this is definitely something that gets better with, with age. IQ doesn't, but EQ does. Fourthly is holistic thinking. Again, this, this some of the that I talked about under insight, but some of it's actually thinking systems theory, being able yeah. to see the whole, being able to you know, connect the dots. Um, and then finally is stewardship. And in many ways, that's the you know, sort of seven generation thinking uh, of, of Native Americans and the idea that you, I am what survives me. Um, and there's a that's Eric Erickson, the developmental psychologist, who said that. Um, David Brooks, quite famously in, in the New York Times, talks about eul- eulogy versus resume values. Um, yeah. So the idea of looking at our life as being a conduit, as being someone who's actually making the world a better place, is something that becomes heightened in one's... I think the second half of one's adult life. It doesn't mean that Greta, who is going out there for climate change, isn't trying to make the world a better place. She absolutely, she she absolutely is. But th- when you're in a stewardship phase of this part, it it actually sometimes on a personal level doesn't. It feels like you're there, um, without all of the trauma, and without all of the ego attached to it.
0: Yeah. Well, I have three teenage daughters. Well, one's 11, but she seems like a teenager. And <laughs> what I will tell you about them is that they are interested in what they are going to get today. <laughs> <laughs> it is short-term profits. Uh, and I think, you know, again, if and of course, I'm older. I have a few more tools. And I'm very much in my family thinking about like, well, what are they going to really get tomorrow? and the day after, and in 20 years, and in 50 years, and how can I be a good family steward? Um, and obviously, then you can, you know, use that metaphor widely uh, and apply it to, to nature and to other, you know, systems that need sustainability. And I think, you know, again, this is one of the things that an elder can bring to the equation within a business context is it's not always about, short-term profits it's not always about top line it can also be about bottom line (laughs) about actually creating a healthy company that doesn't need to raise high velocity dollars every (laughs) six months um so this is a. I i think you know again i've had to learn that the hard way
1: it's long-term thinking i mean it it it, wisdom is very much built on the long term on on many levels
0: so So let's talk about Baja and, yes. uh, and I suppose New Mexico as well, but let's start with Baja because that's yeah. the foundation and so what, uh, what's going on.
1: Well, you know, uh, to be the conduit is really what I most aspire to today is how, how do I create a, a place that is focused on helping people to distill wisdom and helping them to reimagine and repurpose themselves. So, um, it, Just came up with the idea of the Modern Elder Academy uh, about four and a half years ago. We opened in January 2018. We've now had almost 2,000 people go through the program uh, from 28 countries. We have 25 regional chapters around the world. So it's a movement. I mean, it really is a movement of people who are reimagining what it means to get older and reframing what what aging means to them and maybe what it means to be an elder, uh, in modern society. Um, there's a component of our program that's about regeneration, regenerating the land, regenerating through farming and, and ranching uh, techniques to you know, help with the climate crisis, but also regenerating ourselves through our wellness and maybe even over time through regenerative medicine. Um, it's about how to shift your mindset from a, from a fix to a growth mindset, which is a particularly important thing to do in midlife and beyond because If you're constantly just trying to prove yourself and only play games that you can win, your life gets narrower and narrower. Your sandbox gets smaller because, quite frankly, you you aren't willing to try things and become a beginner again. And then finally, it's all about transition. You know, we somehow think that all of the transitions of our life happen when we're young. But, you know, we have so many transitions in midlife, whether it's being an empty nester, going through divorce, changing careers, having your parents pass away, um, having a health diagnosis, moving where you live, the evolving relationship with spirituality. Um, there's a lot. And yet somehow we think of adolescence as the only liminal period for life stages because you're between childhood and adulthood. But there's a, there's a word, a new word called middle essence. Um, you know, middle essence is, is the period of time between uh, adulthood and elderhood. And often a period of time when you're going through menopause or men are going through andropause. And so all of this is out there. And yet there is not there. are And there are personal growth retreat centers that might do a workshop on occasion at Esalen or Omega on a topic like this. But there's no place that has a curriculum, a school, a set of teachers that actually are experts in this particular set of topics and that's what we're doing and that it's been so successful with the first location here uh, an hour north of Cabo San Lucas in the southern Baja uh, that we um, uh, bought a 2600 at Rake Ranch outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico to have our next location there as well as have regenerative residential communities in both locations.
0: You're being chip again.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I, being chip means damn chip. You just you're just you go out and do things, and like yeah. Why don't you just slow down? It's like I do no, slow down. But
0: you have the uh, uncanny ability to both be a visionary and to manifest. Mm. So thank you. That's uh, that elixir of skills is difficult. I mean, I you know, oftentimes people have a lot of ideas, but they can't operate. Or there are good operators, but yeah. they're not particularly creative. Yeah. But to to have uh, both is unique, and you're leveraging those skills. And, you know, I, I know that we both have a very good mutual friend in Paul Hawken. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, you get all sorts of just world-renowned and high-caliber folks to come down and um, and teach uh, yes. as part of the Modern Elder Academy uh faculty, extended mm-hmm. faculty. And I know yeah. Paul's coming down there in December and I'll be down there uh, yeah. to visit. Um, okay. But Paul uh, is obviously just, uh, just put out a book called regeneration mm-hmm. and um, he's 75, I think. Yes, And um, and he's been talking about reversing global warming for 40, 50 years. Mm-hmm. And now at 75, His work is more important than it ever was or ever has been. And I'll tell you something that was so moving, and I will endeavor not to get emotional about it uh, here publicly, but I may, was, you know, I asked Jasmine, his wife, I was like, you know, so the book is coming out, and um, what's going on, like... You know, you must be have so many responsibilities and, you know, he's getting all this press and he's, you know, charting on the New York Times and stuff like that. You know, what is your role and responsibility in all of this? And she said, Paul has been at this wisdom for 50 years. And in the next 10 years, he's going to have more utility than he's ever had before to the world between the ages of 75 and 85. Sure. My only responsibility right now is to make sure he is well. And I was like,
1: Mm. whoa.
0: Beautiful. And it was beautiful. Beautiful. And, you know, I think it, it also underscores really how crucial and integral that kind of wisdom is. And, and um, so, anyways, uh, I, I just uh, I felt that emerge just now, knowing kind of what you're creating down there, and um, you know, both of us have been, you know, focused on community for so long. I mean, at Wanderlust, you know, we would bring all of these incredible teachers together, and we would put a, put them on these mountaintops everywhere, and then we would go out and survey, and we would say. Like, what was incredible? What was the best thing about Wanderlust? It would be like the music, the yoga teachers, the location. Every time the survey would come back, it would always say community. It was always yeah. the community. And, um, and I know that you're building such a, I mean, you know, to put that many people, over 2,000 people through that program in not a very long period of time is unbelievable.
1: Well, there's, there's a term that comes from French sociologist, uh, Emile Durkheim, and it's collective effervescence. And um, I, when I was on the board of Burning Man and helping to craft where Burning Man was going, um, I, I loved this phrase because it really spoke to the idea of what can happen when you're, with a common, you're you are in a place with a common ethos, and your sense of ego separation starts to melt. And what comes in its place is this communal joy, this collective effervescence. And it doesn't, ha- it can happen in a big, you know, it could be at a wanderlust festival. It could be where you feel that sense of community. It could happen at Burning Man. It could happen at t- for 20 people in a cohort at the Modern Elder Academy. But finding ways to connect with collective effervescence is part of our declaration of inter- interdependence. And I think that that's, we need more of that in the world.
0: I couldn't agree more. So where are all the different places we can find you and all of your myriad you efforts?
1: Find me online with chipconley.com. Um but the probably the best place to go to is the Modern Elder Academy website, modernelder.com. You can learn more about our online programs, our sabbatical sessions, and our regenerative communities as well as our workshops. Um, I have I have a daily blog called Wisdom Well. And I love it. It's a day, you know, it's a daily blog with me and guests and bloggers, but it's mostly mine, uh, talking about little micro doses of wisdom every every morning. And um, that's another way you can connect with us uh, or with me. And um, yeah, so anything out there in social media. We also have a, an, an MEA Facebook group that's quite active, um, with about four thousand people on it. Uh, it's you know a, a great way to. You don't have to have been in a program or be an alum to to be part of that yeah thank you jeff it's been a great opportunity to reconnect
0: yeah thanks for your your friendship and your mentorship for so many years um it's something that i take uh very seriously and and i have a lot of gratitude for it so thank you
1: yes see you soon
0: (laughs) see you soon on a beach yes Thank you for listening to this conversation with Chip Conley. You can learn more about the Modern Elder Academy at modernelderacademy.com. And feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. And if so inclined, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible, including Jake Laub, Kamali Martin, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fritz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.